Merry Christmas, friends. Thank you. It is a great blessing to be together on this day, Christmas Eve, when we uh, celebrate the climax of the Advent season. I hope that you'll be here this evening when we celebrate uh, this great coming of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, where we light the Christ candle and, and uh, remember all the good things that we have in Christ because he determined to become one of us, to save us. What a blessing. Certainly uh, things to be eternally thankful for. Um, and of course the Advent season is what we've been celebrating for the past four weeks at Sun Valley where we uh, take one uh, aspect of the Advent and, and celebrate it together by lighting these Advent candles that you saw one lit this morning. Uh, of course, God was on the planet before this celebration of Advent and the Advent itself. This is a celebration of the first Advent of God coming in human flesh. We know that he was on this planet because he created it, right? Uh, he was here with Adam and Eve, walking with them, talking with them in the garden. Uh, we know that, that God was on the planet because we read in Exodus 3 that he was talking to Moses out of a burning bush. We know that he was on this planet because he had face-to-face -face conversations with Abraham and many others in the Old Testament. And so when we celebrate the advent of God, it's not, it's not the first advent that every time God showed up. No, this is the advent of God in human flesh. The first time he showed up in human flesh was 2,000 years ago uh, in the manger, the things we've been singing about and praying about this morning. And so we celebrate this wonderful event because of the massive implications of the advent of God in human flesh. And so <clears throat> this particular celebration is, is something we look forward to every single year. Because it reminds us of these implications. As we read this morning, the word, that is the word, God, became flesh and dwelt among us. That is so common to us that it, we, we lose the implications of that. This morning I want to remind you of these implications by continuing our sermon series in Colossians. If you have a Bible, I want to ask you to turn with me to Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 9 through 11 this morning through the lens of the Advent. Last week, or actually the last time I preached, last week I was sick, but the last time I preached on Colossians was two weeks ago. I covered the first eight verses, and I'd like to read those for you right now. Colossians chapter 1. Verses 1 through 8. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Jesus Christ and the love that you have for all the saints. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world, 
It is bearing fruit and growing as it does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So I, I preached on that two weeks ago, and, and what I communicated with you at that time was that there's things that happen to us when we embrace the gospel. Uh, Paul here is describing a gospel-changed life and the results of that gospel-changed life. The first thing I mentioned to you was that if you've truly been saved, if you've truly embraced Jesus as your Lord and Savior, your life will be an encouragement to those around you, as it was to Paul. He was encouraged by the life, by the report of the lives of the Colossian believers. Secondly, I said to you that a gospel-changed life results in a genuine love for others. Do you know Jesus? Well, it'll be evident in your love for others. If you love others, it's a good sign that you love Jesus. If you are always struggling, always fighting with, always in issues with other people, then, other people, then you want to maybe question whether or not you know Jesus. Because if you've been transformed by the gospel, it results in a love for others, particularly the saints, believers. Thirdly, a gospel-changed life results in a life-altering perspective. It's a hope that we have in heaven, that it's a perspective that God gives us through Christ Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. Instead of being focused on self and what you can accomplish in your own agenda, when the gospel has had an impact on your life, it changes your perspective. It alters how you view things, and that's because of the hope that we have in heaven. We have a gospel-changed life. And finally, I mentioned that a gospel-changed life results in a desire to tell others about Jesus and what he has done for you. Do you have that desire? Has God really done some amazing things for you through the gospel? Well, if so, you'll be interested in telling others about it. If it's as great as you think it is or say it is, then others will hear about it from you, right? If you think the Seahawks are great, you're willing to talk about them. If, you're, if whatever you think is great, you're willing to talk about it. Your investment strategies, whatever. How, how willing are you to talk about Jesus? The one who saved you from your sin, the one who's planned a great future for you, are you willing to talk about him? If you've been changed by the gospel, that in fact will be part of your life, an interest in telling other people about him. So today, I want to spend the rest of our time looking at verses 9 through 14. And since we're celebrating the Advent, I want to look at these verses through the lens of the Advent. All right? Through the lens of the Advent. Let me read them for you and keep that lens in front of you, if you will. And so, Paul continues, from the day we heard, heard what? Heard of their faith. Since the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy." giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. 
Now, when you read through this in your daily Bible reading plan, or when you've been reading through it as you have over the past couple months, if you have in preparation for this sermon series, you may not think of these verses uh, through that lens of the Advent, but I'm asking you this morning to work with me on this um, and make this a appropriate Christmas Sunday sermon, all right? So let's look at these verses through the lens of the Advent, if you will. And so my purpose in this sermon is to remind you of the amazing blessings of God becoming a man. Maybe in your family celebration of Christmas tomorrow, you could take out your sermon notes or at least these verses and remind each other of these blessings and give thanks to the one who gave them. All right, so let's, let's look at these. First of all, the first Advent blessing that I want to point out to you is seen in verse 9. A right knowledge of God. Because God became man 2,000 years ago, we can now have a right knowledge of God. And so from the day we heard it, Paul wrote, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. A right knowledge of God. Now here's a side note. And it could be the central note if we were in a uh, different setting. But this is a wonderful pattern for you to use in prayer for other people. You want to know what to pray for other people? Model this prayer. It, it will, you, you like, you're wondering in your small group, okay, they're asking for prayer requests. What should I ask for? Uh, my grandma has a hangnail. You know, you pray for that. Instead of that, maybe just read a couple of these verses to your small group and say, please pray this for me. I don't know, something to think about. Side note, let's get back now here to how the advent of, of God becoming man gives us a right knowledge of God, a right knowledge of God. Notice that Paul says, I pray that you'll be filled, that you'll be filled with the knowledge of his will. And when Paul prays for that, he's asking God that God would grant to those for whom he is praying a complete, full, satisfying knowledge of God himself. Do you want that? What a prayer request. If you want to pray for me, church, pray that for me, please. And I would suggest you pray that for all those you love. Pray that, that God would fill us Fill us to the point of being totally controlled by our understanding of who God is. If you truly understand who God is, let me tell you, it will control the way you think and live. We've come across this word knowledge before in our studies, haven't we? Do you remember this? He says, be filled with the knowledge. This word knowledge is an important word in Paul's vocabulary. It's not just knowing that God exists. I pray that you'll know that. No, he's not praying that. He, he, and that's the word gnosis, to know, right? That's where we get our word knowledge from, the Greek word gnosis. But Paul adds a preposition to that word gnosis. He calls it epikenosis, a full understanding, a complete understanding, a saving knowledge of God. 
Paul's praying that we will have a complete, satisfying, saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Life-altering, daily changing our perspective because of what we know about God. So, Paul wants us to know God well enough to have it change the way we think and live. Does your knowledge of God change the way you think and live? Does your knowledge of God change anything about your relationship to your spouse, your children, your neighbors, your boss at work? Knowledge that is complete and thorough knowledge of God has come to us through the advent of Jesus Christ. That is where we get this full knowledge that Paul's talking about. God became man and did what for us? Revealed the Father to us. Revealed God to us. This is what the advent of God in human flesh accomplishes. Because God became man, we are now able to know God in a more complete way than they did in the Old Testament days. John 1.18, we read it this morning. No one has ever seen God, the only God, referring to Jesus Christ, who is at the Father's side. So it's not God the Father. Who's John talking about? God the Son, Jesus Christ, the one who was incarnated. Because he has been made known to us, he has made God known to us. The Son arrived in the form of Jesus Christ and has revealed God the Father to us. We can now have a full, complete, saving knowledge of God because Jesus arrived on this planet 2,000 years ago. Knowing God and his will is open for any interested person. You don't have to be a theologian. You don't have to have to find a special text under a tree someplace. No. Uh, the, the Bible, what you have in your hands, is sufficient to reveal to us all that we must know for life and godliness. All we must know to be saved. All we must know to live uh, in a manner worthy of the Lord. For example, 1 Timothy 2.4 says, Paul tells us that God wants us turn, to turn away from self and turn to Jesus. God desires that all men be saved. That's his will for you. You don't have to wonder, does God want me saved? Yeah, he does. It says so in the Bible. Next, we see in Ephesians 5.17 that he wants you to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instead of being filled with wine, to, Paul, to use Paul's example, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And we could, we could exchange things with wine, like instead of being filled with sports, instead of being filled with relationships, instead of being filled with your vocation, be filled with the Holy Spirit, is what Paul is saying. That's God's will. In 1 Thessalonians 4.3, Paul said God wants us to become like Jesus. You want to know what God's will is for you today? Become more like Jesus. That's what. You don't have to wonder. I wonder what God wants me to do today. Well, he wants this. Become more like Jesus. He wants you also to be a good citizen of the country in which you live. Peter tells us, 1 Peter 2. He also wants you to be full of joy. Paul says to the Philippians in chapter 4, God's will is that you be thankful, 1 Thessalonians 5.17. So God's will is not hidden. It's not secret. It's open for anyone who's interested on the pages of Scripture. So... What does this knowledge of God and his will produce in us? What does the arrival of Jesus Christ 
The advent of God in human flesh actually produce in us who get to know him. Well, look at the rest of the verse. Be filled with the knowledge of his will. What's the next phrase say? In all spiritual wisdom and understanding. God wants you to be filled with the knowledge of God, a life-changing, life-altering, saving knowledge of God that results in spiritual, all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Wisdom here is a reference to a broad knowledge of biblical principles for daily living. Knowing God produces that. If you get to know God, you'll get an idea of what it means to live biblically, live in a way that honors God. Understanding is, is a synonym, but it takes it one step further, and it is the practical application of that knowledge. In other words, God just doesn't want you sitting here filling your mind with information so that you can win a Bible trivia game. No, he wants you filled with information about God so it changes the way you think and live. That is the purpose of being filled with the knowledge of God. So gaining spiritual wisdom and understanding is part of what it means to be sanctified, to be changed into the likeness of Jesus. This is what Paul was talking about in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Don't be conformed to this world, he said, but be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind. Having it filled with the knowledge of God instead of the knowledge of the worldly things that may fill your mind. Why? So that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. There's that idea again, which is good and acceptable and perfect. Friends, God desires that his people live as he has designed. He doesn't save you to continue living as you wish and then one day take you to heaven. No, he saves you so that you will live as if you know him as if you have an understanding of what's important to him. And so this is why he saves us. He wants the knowledge of his will to fill our minds so it affects how we live. The great theologian F.F. Bruce said, right knowledge leads to right behavior. You want to change how you think and live? Fill your mind, fill your mind with the knowledge of God. This is what Paul's praying for. This is what happened now that Jesus has arrived. This is accessible to us. Secondly, what the uh, second blessing of the advent is this, a right relationship with God, verses 12 through 14. So we're looking at the, these verses through the lens of the advent. The second blessing of the Advent that I want to point out to you is that because God became man 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem, we can actually enjoy a right relationship with God. Now, you Christians have heard this your whole life, a relationship with God, a right relationship with God. But back out of it just a couple steps and you'll see the massive importance of what it means to have a right relationship with God. <laughs> Your judge. All right, Let, let's dig into this a little bit. Verses 12 through 14, let me reread those for you. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance 
of the saints in light, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. <laughs> That's a mouthful, isn't it? Well, it's beyond a mouthful. It's a theology book full. It's a doctrine book full. Systematic theologies that we're aware of are based on these truths that I just read for you from those three verses. They're life-shattering verses. So let's look at the second blessing of the Advent. First of all, Paul says that because Jesus became, because God became man in Jesus, that the Father has qualified us for an inheritance. And I know everybody likes an inheritance, especially if it's a good one. Well, this is a good one. The inheritance that's promised to us by God in the scriptures is amazing. And it comes to us, Paul said, from the Father. From the Father. Now, we may have the notion that God the Father is the one we want to avoid, right? If we have to choose between the persons of the Trinity, that's the one, that's the guy we're going to avoid. The father, he's the judge, he's the punisher, he's the, he's the mean guy of the three, right? We like the Holy Spirit, we really like Jesus, God the Father, mm, not so much. But Paul said that, that, did you look at this? Maybe if you have one of those pens in your hand, underline the father. The father is the one who's qualified you. Yeah, it was the Father who planned to send his Son to earth. It was the Father who, who orchestrated all the details of your conversion. It was the Father, God the Father, the judge of the universe, who qualified you for this inheritance that you long for, that we hope for. Friends, what an amazing truth. It was God the Father's idea to send Jesus to Bethlehem. It was God the Father's idea to, to appoint the Holy Spirit to convert your heart, to change you into somebody who loves the Father, loves the Son, loves the Spirit. It was the Father who did that for you. Now, I want to emphasize something else in this verse. He said that he is the one who qualifies us for this inheritance, which means we didn't. Right? If he qualified us, you didn't qualify you. So, as exceptional as ourselves are, we didn't qualify ourselves for this inheritance as if I ran so fast, I won a race. No. He qualified us. It's not something we've earned. It's, it's only because of the Father's grace. It's only because of his goodness. It's only because of his love for you that he's qualified you. The word inheritance may also be of some encouragement to someone in the room. Notice that Paul uses the plural form of saints, which means that each saint will receive a share of the inheritance. So he has this share, that he has this inheritance, this, these wonderful ideas about 
all that is in store for us who know Christ, and you, and you, and you, and you get your share. It's reserved specifically for me and for you. It's not like, okay, here's a, here's a big bag. You guys divvy it up how you want. You know, some of you get more. No. This inheritance is, has a, a reserved part for you. And I don't know if that's meaningful to all of you, but I know it is for some of you because you think, well, I'm kind of in the background kind of person. I'm not sure that God even knows I'm part of this group. Uh, well, guess what? there is a share of the inheritance with your name on it. What is the inheritance? The Bible goes to great lengths, particularly in the New Testament, about what this is and includes eternal life. You heard of that? That's an important thing to us. Uh, and then not just eternal life, but eternal life on earth. Okay, so you may not think about this too often, but the eternal life that we will live once we die, there will be a time spent in heaven, but the vast majority of our eternal life will be spent on this planet, in the millennial kingdom, and on the, the new earth that will be created after that. So the word, the word here that Paul uses to describe this gift of inheritance, the word qualified, is present tense in the original language. In other words, this inheritance has already begun. It's already in play. You remember Jesus said, using the present tense, you have eternal life. It's not you will have or you're going to have. No, you do have eternal life. It's already begun for those of us who are in Christ, those of us who have embraced him as our Lord and Savior. It's in the present tense. Eternal life has already begun. Now, there are aspects, of course, of this inheritance that remain future, like the new heaven and new earth, and we look forward to those things greatly. But the, the idea is, is that for those of us who have embraced Jesus as our Lord and Savior, the inheritance has already begun. Don't you wish your father-in-law would think these ways, or your father. You know, dad, when can the inheritance begin? You know, if you want to be biblical, dad, it should begin now, right? That can be your argument. And if your father-in-law or father is a godly man, he may listen. Or if he is a godly man, he may not listen. Um, I'm not sure, but the idea here is that your inheritance, this inheritance that the father has qualified you for, has already begun. You've experienced it. Many parts of this inheritance already. The first that I want you to see here is the second point. is He's delivered us from darkness. That's present tense inheritance. This is the second thing that Paul says about our right relationship with God. You've been delivered from darkness. Um. Aren't you thankful for this? When we're younger, maybe even when we're older, not many of us enjoy the darkness. I remember I, had to, I was sent down to the basement to get wood for the fireplace as a kid. 
And that was a traumatic experience for me, it seemed. I remember that uh, I was down there and I was certain that shadows were moving. Um, and it was a scary place. And I had to go down these stairs, grab an iron load of wood and sprint back upstairs without pulling a hamstring. Um, of course, when I was that age, you know, I was tendon man, and my hamstring could stretch a mile, I think. Uh, it's not so much the case anymore. But anyways, we're, we've been delivered from darkness. Some translations use this great word, we've been rescued from darkness. Would that be your description? That you've been rescued by God from the darkness? Oh my, what a thought. Aren't you thankful? At one point, we were under the bondage of sin. At one point, we were under the jurisdiction of the enemy, Satan. But now we are, we're here in the kingdom of his son, in the kingdom of light, rescued from darkness. This happens, this rescue happens at the moment we place our trust in Jesus. Have you done that? Or do you remain in darkness? I don't want you to misunderstand me here when I tell you that being rescued from darkness happens the moment we place our trust in Jesus. Because our decision to follow Jesus and embrace him as Lord and Savior means that he has already done that for us. Um, the rescue has already taken place. That's why the light seems nice and good. That's why the gospel sounds attractive to you. It's because you have been rescued already. And, and you didn't do this yourself. This is something God did for you. The Father has granted this gift of rescue. He's the one who, who sent the Holy Spirit to convert your soul. That's when the rescue actually happened. Your response to the gospel is just a result of that rescue. It says in 1 John 5, 1, everyone who believes in Jesus has been born of God. They've already been rescued. That's why they believe. And then we've been transferred to the kingdom of Jesus, Jesus' kingdom. This, this being in right relationship with Jesus includes being a part of his kingdom, transferred there. We're literally plucked out of the domain of darkness and placed into the kingdom of Jesus. It's, it's something that God literally does. He takes us out of a dark place and sets us in a light place. From alienation to reconciliation, from here to there. We have a right relationship with God because of the incarnation, because of the advent of God in human flesh. And then finally here we have this third blessing that has come to us as a result of the advent of God in human flesh is a right life before God. And I'm going to jump back up to verses 10 and 11 to embrace that thought. Verses 10 and 11 says this, after he prays that they'd be filled with the knowledge of his will and spiritual wisdom and understanding. Why? So that you can walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. A right relationship 
leads, leads to a right life. So that you can walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Well, let me unpack this for you. This is rich, friends. Verse 10, Paul says that God fills us with his will, with spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that we can walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. A right knowledge of God leads to a right relationship with God that results in a right life before God. These are all connected to the advent in Paul's mind. Your relationship with Jesus Christ is a direct result of his incarnation. He came to do two things, as you remember. To live the perfect life that God requires you to live, but you cannot. He lived that for you. And then the second purpose of his advent was to die in your place to satisfy the justice of God in relation to your sin. Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty that's owed for your rebellion against God, but could never pay. And so he came to live the life that God requires of you and die the death that was required of you that you'll never be able to pay. Because of the incarnation. Because of his advent. Once this right relationship with God is established by the work of the Holy Spirit, guess what? We are granted the ability and the desire to live life in such a way that is worthy of Jesus. Once you have a right knowledge, it produces a right relationship, which produces a right life. And this happens because the Holy Spirit converts the soul and makes you want to please Jesus. You're not going to anymore see how close you can play to the edge of the precipice. That's not going to be the question. The question will be, how can I please Jesus more? Not how much can I sin and get away with, but how much can my life reflect the joy and thanksgiving that I have because of what he's done for me? Paul referred to the walk that is worthy of Jesus to help you think about this. The word walk is used in the Bible often to speak of the pattern of daily conduct. And when we have seen, in Scripture we've seen it a lot, we see right conduct is a result of right thinking, which results in right living. Evidently, Paul thought it was possible to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. You may think, who's worthy of the Lord? Well, Paul thinks that you can be, evidently. This type of right living or, or walking isn't accomplished in our own strength or inherent goodness either. You know that, right? No, it comes from being regenerated and filled with the Holy Spirit who causes us to think rightly about God, think rightly about ourselves, and then gives us a desire and strength to live in a way that's worthy of Jesus. You remember this famous hymn from Martin Luther? Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Doth ask who that may be? Christ Jesus. It is he, Lord Sabaoth his name, 
from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. You're not going to win the battle. He must win the battle. And, of course, you remember this verse from Galatians 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ, Paul wrote. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live in the flesh by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's of him. Jesus Christ lives in us by the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit is in control of our daily lives, our daily thinking, thoughts, words, attitudes, motives, etc., then our lives will produce what Paul says here in verse 10, a worthy walk. And Paul says that that walk is fully pleasing. Do you see that? In verse 10, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Comma, here it is. What's worthy of the Lord? It's a, it's a walk that's fully pleasing to God. What's fully pleasing look like? Well, according to the Bible, it's a walk marked by humility, purity, faith, a life that's distinct from the world, a life of love, joy, contentment. It's not a life that's partially pleasing. Like, when I sit here for an hour on Sunday morning, my life is generally pleasing to the Lord. But when I go, you know, cuss out my neighbor because his leaves are on my lawn, then it's not so pleasing. Or when I cheat on my taxes, or when I drive the way I do to get to work because I left late, that's maybe not so pleasing, but the rest of my life's pleasing. No, Paul says, fully pleasing. A manner that's worthy of the Lord, a walk that's worthy of the Lord, is fully pleasing. Your, your financial life, your marriage life, your vocation, your small group life, your life is fully pleasing to the Lord. What else is it? This, this worthy walk, it's bearing fruit, evidently. You see it? Fully pleasing him, bearing fruit in every good work. The mark of a worthy walk, of course, bearing fruit is a work of the Holy Spirit. Bringing to bear right thinking and right relationships, resulting in a fruitful life. Remember Jesus said, without me you can do nothing. Without me. And then he went on to say, three verses later in, in verse 8 of John 15, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit. And what does bearing much fruit prove? You're my disciples. And then verse 16 of the same conversation Jesus had in John 15. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go bear fruit. God saves you, friends, to live a life that's worthy of Christ. To bear fruit. Be fully pleasing. And what does this spiritual fruit look like according to the Bible? We learn that sharing your faith is bearing fruit in 1 Corinthians 16. We read in Hebrews 13 that giving praise to God is a spiritual fruit. And so sitting here mumbling through the songs on Sunday morning isn't bearing fruit. Singing joyfully and loudly is bearing fruit. You say, oh, I have a good voice. It doesn't say those of you who have a good voice sing. It says, make a joyful noise. And, you know, I know a few people, I've heard them, it's just noise. <laughs> but it's joyful. And so we're thankful, right? 
And then godly living, according to Hebrews 12, godly living is a spiritual fruit. Giving money is a spiritual fruit, Romans 15, 1 Corinthians 8. Having peace in stressful, stressful situations is a spiritual fruit, Hebrews 12. So are you bearing fruit for the kingdom? Are you walking in a manner worthy of Jesus Christ, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit? If not, why not? Do you have the Holy Spirit in you? Are you, what the next point is, increasing in the knowledge of God? This is the, another blessing of the Advent, to be increasing in the knowledge of God. It's a hallmark worthy of a Jesus walk. And increasing knowledge of God is critical for our spiritual growth. Where there is no increase in your knowledge of God, there is no spiritual growth. Is your spiritual growth stalled of late? Have you hit a plateau, so to speak? Well, I, if so, I guarantee you that the progress of your faith is stalled. Your life isn't fully pleasing to the Lord. You're not walking in a manner worthy of Jesus. There never comes a time on this side of death where you can cease your pursuit of a deeper knowledge of God. That, that place doesn't exist. Um, you'll never arrive. That progress in your knowledge is what produces spiritual growth. Peter said to long for pure spiritual milk. Do you long for pure spiritual milk? Like pant for it? In 2 Peter 3.18, Peter commands us to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. It's a command. So what are you doing to grow in your knowledge of God? What book are you reading? The Bible? Good. Anything else? Or... Maybe you're still uh, challenged by the television or internet surfing instead of growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus. Can you do what Paul is suggesting here with your own determination? Maybe you're a German. You have a better chance than most if you're going to do this by your own determination, right? But look at verse 11. Paul prays that God would strengthen the Colossians with all strength according to his glorious strength. Talk about redundancy. Maybe he has a point. Look what it says. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Let me point something out to you. The word strength Power and might are all the same word. <laughs> the English translators just didn't want to sound stupid. But it says, may you be strengthened with all strength according to his glorious strength for all endurance and patience with joy. It is up to God that you walk worthy. But you must join him in that process. Justification is of God alone. Sanctification you join in the process. I know this is a little bit hard to wrap our minds around, but it is God who strengthens us 
to walk in a manner worthy of Jesus. It's important to understand that if God answers this prayer from Paul, what it would be strengthening for you is a worthy walk. He's asking that God would accomplish this for his readers, including you and me. The, the end of verse lesson tells us that this worthy walk is made up of endurance and patience and joy. Endurance for what? Impatience for what? Or patience for what? And joy for what? Well, we usually need endurance for times when we might run out of natural strength to endure something ourselves. Like a physical trial, like an emotional trial, like a relational trial, like a financial trial. Sooner or later, your, your, your human strength is going to expire and you'll need God's strength to navigate this in a way that's worthy of, of Jesus Christ. So, next, are you joyfully here this morning? I know you're here, but are you joyfully here? Paul says this is part of what's happening. You got here, I think, in your right mind, fully clothed, able to get into the building. So whatever may be going on in your life, You've demonstrated this morning that you've been given the strength, whether it's physical, emotional, mental, or spiritual, to get into the building and sit where you are. You've demonstrated endurance. And this divine endurance isn't given to accomplish selfish ends, obviously. It's endurance given by God in response to a prayer by Paul or by your spouse or by your pastor or elder or friend to bring glory to Jesus and contentment and joy to you. So when you pray this prayer for those in your small group or for those in your family, you're praying that it produces the very same thing Paul's hoping it produces in the Colossians and the Holy Spirit hopes and plans to produce in you. Any endurance that God grants, any patience that God grants, any joy that he grants isn't going to circumvent his designs to make you more dependent on him, more satisfied in him, or more joyful in him. You remember Piper's famous quote, God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. Paul goes on to say at the end of verse 11 that the divine strength that he's praying for is for the purpose of producing patience. How's that going for you? We learn fairly often in life not to pray for patience, right? The minute you pray for patience, your life goes bonkers. Um, so we stopped praying for that a while back. Maybe I shouldn't say that in public because I want some of you young people to learn this. <laughs> but Paul's prayer goes beyond endurance and patience. You see it? You see where Paul's prayer ends? It goes beyond endurance and patience and ends with joy and thanksgiving. <laughs> we may be able to endure things because we have a stiff upper lip or maybe even exercise patience that would be commendable. But to have endurance and patience with joy? That requires divine strength. Joy is that quality, that perspective that only comes from knowing that the Lord is in charge of our circumstances. 
It's impossible to have true joy in negative circumstances if those circumstances are actually random or unlucky. But knowing that our God orchestrates the details of our circumstances to accomplish his purposes in and through us changes everything. We can actually be joyful in all things because we know that God has a definite purpose in my specific circumstances. He is up to something specifically with me and my circumstances. That brings joy. Paul then adds the attitude of thanksgiving to the list as if joy wasn't difficult enough to get our minds around. He says, with thanksgiving, giving thanks to the Father who has done these things. In Ephesians 5.20, Paul said we are to give thanks always and for everything. Quote, unquote. Give thanks for all things in everything. Ephesians 5.20. I think that's fairly comprehensive. So how is it possible to navigate our negative circumstances with authentic joy and habitual thanksgiving? Friends, it's got to be in our perspective. It's got to be in the perspective Paul is praying for. Are your circumstances designed by a loving God or do they happen by chance? What is your perspective? It matters what your perspective is. So what circumstances do you find yourself in currently that require God's strength to patiently endure with authentic joy and thanksgiving? What circumstances are you facing where these things will be a challenge? Maybe it's your planned trip to the in-laws for Christmas tomorrow. Or it's the job that God has placed you in. Maybe it's your financial circumstances, your marriage, your children, your health. What is it? What opportunity has God given you to exercise patience with thanksgiving and joy? Whatever your circumstances are currently is that opportunity. I used to uh, tell the kids, I added the kids that I coached soccer memorized 12 statements. One of them was, this is an opportunity, not a threat. So, your circumstances are not a threat, they're an opportunity. An opportunity to experience the power of God working through the Spirit of God to bring about endurance, patience, joy, and thanksgiving. This is what the advent of God in human flesh makes possible. Let's pray. Father, your plan of sending your Son, our God and Savior Jesus Christ, to this planet to be one of us is joy-producing. It's mind-boggling, but thanksgiving-producing. Father, we've heard here from this intimate prayer from the Apostle Paul for the Colossians, the many 
wonderful and great blessings that we have at our disposal because of the advent of Jesus Christ, our Savior. We give you praise and glory and thanksgiving with much joy because of these things. Give us now the strength to live in a way that is worthy of Jesus, our Savior, who came and did all these things for us. And we pray this in his name. Amen.